Well, this week I asked uh, my Facebook friends to share stories of times when they were warned about something but didn't listen. You know what I'm talking about? We had several friends who left parts of their tongues behind on frozen poles in spite of the fact that they had been warned by parents or friends not to do that. Another friend had been warned not to climb a certain tree several times by his grandpa, but received a stinging reception from some wasps, irritated with his presence. Uh, Jackie's sister, I believe, uh, having been warned by a mother of a friend, tested her resolve by swearing in front of her and uh, enjoyed the taste of soap for hours, I believe. Amanda had been told to lie down to get a needle. Amen, Amanda? She ended up lying down anyway. <laughs> uh, a former colleague of mine warned by her daughter to get off a rickety ladder, stop doing what she was doing. I know this woman well. I know how she takes warnings. And if she were here, she'd say amen. Anyway, she was told to get down, but she got down a little later for a free ride to the hospital. The warnings we didn't heed. The, the warnings we were told, but we didn't listen. The pain that came as a result. People ignore good warnings all the time. Avalanche warnings, safety warnings, storm warnings, air quality warnings, even boil advisories, boil water advisories. How many of you ignored that one for years? Yes. You can get an amen from the Lister crowd. Uh, or, uh, <clears throat> and, 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 and uh, you know, we had the experience since moving here of, of, of uh, you know, thinking, ah, water's fine until one Thanksgiving morning there was a note in our door saying, uh, don't drink the water because we, we found a squirrel floating in the reservoir and we don't know how long it was floating there. Remember that? A few of you in that same district of water. I hope you got the note too. That was a warning I was quite willing to heed, actually. The fact is, warnings can be gracious, right? But why can't we see the warnings for what they are often? Opportunities to avoid further trouble that will be looming on the horizon. Why do we, why do people persist in going their own way, confident that they have all they need that they can handle? Why is that? Is it disbelief in the messenger, mistrust from the source? Is it really that they think, or I think, that I am the exception here? I mean, all those other idiots, I know, but I'm better than that. Is that what it is? Or maybe it really just, just come down to the fact that I want to do what I want to do, and I want to do it, and how I want to do it, and no one can tell me any different? Pride? Well, today we're talking about warnings. Gracious warnings. We come to the part in the Revelation where the word apocalypse, you know the word we've been trying to overturn its meaning? Well, we actually come to the passage, or one of the passages today, where the word apocalypse gets its common cultural meaning. All through the series we've emphasized that the apocalypse means revelation, right? Pulling back a curtain, showing us someone, particularly Jesus, who is present in the midst of our mess, in the midst of our struggle, And what this letter does is it gives us an apocalypse. It pulls back the curtain. It helps Christians to see what's actually going on in their world. So they can interpret it through what Jesus is doing and his presence among them. But today's vision, uh, Romans, Revelation 8 and 9, it actually seems just like the word apocalypse that we like. We've always used it. It's a series of horrible, devastating judgments that are poured out on the earth with the body count just piling up and uh, things just getting wrecked. Everywhere. And what do we do with that? How do we fit that into this revelation of Jesus? How is Jesus revealed through this passage? Well, as we get into the passage today, and it is in your bulletins, I hope, and uh, you can read along there, uh, but on your phones or in your Bibles, whatever, but follow along, Revelation 8 and 9. 
but before we get into that, let me give you a little heads up. First, we're not going to be able to tell the whole story today. It's just one of those parts in the Revelation where Revelation 8 and 9 is part of a longer passage. We actually need Revelation 10 and 11 to be able to complete it, but we can all agree that that was too much to cover in one Sunday morning. Right? Okay. So you won't hold me terribly to the fire if I'm not complete uh, t- this morning. Um, today I'm going to try to make sense of Re- Revelation 8 and 9 and then lead us into communion together. But I really do want you to think of this as part one. And, and we're going somewhere. Part two and then of course the rest of Revelation as it unfolds. But you really need to come back next year. Next year. <laughs> next week. And here, here part two so that it rounds out. So that's the first thing. Not the whole thing this morning. Uh, Second, these two chapters, and and what we're going to see, this vision of these judgments, they're in direct response to the prayer we've already heard from the martyrs who were under the altar when they cried out, How long, Sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? What we see is direct response to that, as well as, here at the start of the chapter, we'll hear that again, because I'll read all of chapter 8, um, the prayers that are being offered, that are being taken up by this angel, and then hurled to the earth. What happens next, these trumpets we're going to hear about, are related to the prayers of God's people, under the altar and on, on the earth as well. Uh, they're, they're directly related to God's uh, people praying for, for justice. Um, they don't yet show us, you know, now the scroll's been unsealed. They don't actually show us yet what's in the scroll. We, we know the scroll has something to do with how God is going gonna, is gonna to make everything right, how he's going to bring his kingdom, how, how evil is going to be destroyed, and how, how uh, you know, he's going to make everything new. That's what it's about. But it doesn't yet show us in this passage uh, what is in the scroll. That revelation is yet to come. So let's read through it together. And... Uh, Maybe to keep us all on the same page, I'd like to borrow someone's... Can I borrow a face? So that we're reading the same thing. Right, my version is just slightly different. so um, It's good to switch up, switch up translations, but maybe for reading this morning, let's keep on the same picture. Here it is. Revelation 8 and 9. Ready for it? Uh, when he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God and seven trumpets were given to them. Another angel who had a golden censer came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all God's people on the golden altar in front of the throne. The smoke of the incense, together with the prayers of God's people, went up before God from the angel's hand. Then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and hurled it on the earth. There came peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Then the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to sound them. Ready for this? The first angel sounded his trumpet and there came hail and fire mixed with blood and it was hurled down on the earth. A third of the earth was burned up. A third of the trees were burned up and all the green grass was burned up. The second angel sounded his trumpet and something like a huge mountain all ablaze was thrown into the sea. A third of the sea turned into blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea died and a third of the ships were destroyed. The third angel sounded his trumpet and a great star blazing like a torch fell from the sky on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star 
was wormwood. It means bitterness. A third of the waters turned bitter. And many people died from the waters that had become bitter. The fourth angel sounded his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, a third of the moon and a third of the stars, so that a third of them turned dark, a third of the day was without light, and also a third of the night. As I watched, I heard an eagle that was flying in midair call out in a loud voice, Woe! Woe! Woe to the inhabitants of the earth because of the trumpet blasts about to be sounded by the other three angels. The fifth angel sounded his trumpet. And I saw a star that had fallen from the sky to the earth. The star was given the key to the shaft of the abyss. When he opened the abyss, smoke rose from it like the smoke from a gigantic furnace. The sun and sky were darkened by the smoke from the abyss. And out of the smoke, locusts came down the earth and were given power like that of scorpions on the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any plant or tree, but only those who did not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were not allowed to kill them, but only to torture them for five months. And the agony they suffered was like that of the sting of a scorpion when it strikes. During those days, people will seek death, but they will not find it. They will long to die, but death will elude them. The locusts looked like horses prepared for battle. On their heads, they wore something like crowns of gold, and their faces resembled human faces. Their hair was like woman's hair. And their teeth were like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron. And and the sound of their wings was like the thundering of many horses and chariots rushing into battle. They had tails with stingers like scorpions. And in their tails, they had power to torment people for five months. They had as king over them the angel of the abyss, whose name in Hebrew is Abaddon and in Greek is Apollyon. That means, that is, destroyer. The first woe is past. Two other woes are yet to come. The sixth angel sounded his trumpet, and I heard a voice coming from the four horns of the golden altar that is before God. It said to the sixth angel, have the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. And the four angels who had been kept ready for this very hour and day and month and year were released to kill a third of mankind. The number of the mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. I heard their number. The horses and riders I saw in my vision looked like this. Their breastplates were fiery red, dark blue, and yellow as sulfur. The heads of the horses resembled the heads of lions. And out of their mouths came fire, smoke, and sulfur. A third of mankind was killed by the three plagues of fire, smoke, and sulfur that came out of their mouths. The power of the horses was in their mouths and their tails, for their tails were like snakes, having heads with which they inflict injury. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues still did not repent of the works of their hands. They did not stop worshipping demons and the idols of gold, silver, bronze, stone, and wood. Idols that cannot see or hear or walk. Nor did they repent of their murders, their magic arts, their sexual immorality, or their thefts. Wow. Yikes. Now you know where the word apocalypse got its bad name. Trumpets blaring, you know, hail mixed with blood, fire, smoke. 
Mountains being thrown down, stars blazing, darkness descending, locusts flying like bats out of hell, horrifying and repellent, with a mind-boggling army of mythical beasts just trampling through. Are you with me here? Now, this is bizarre stuff. This is a weird vision. And in order for us to even move anywhere with this, we've got to ask some basic questions. There's three of them we're going to do this morning. First, what are these judgments? Second, what were they designed to do? And third, did it work? Let's work through these three questions and then uh, try to glean something from, from this vision. So first, what are these judgments? A few things to notice. First, many of these uh, judgments are fashioned on the plagues of Egypt. Do you remember that story? Uh, some of you might be less familiar with it. Some of you have heard this story for years. God's people were oppressed by the wicked regime of Egypt, forcing a whole people group, the people of Israel, into bonded slavery and then committing genocide by killing their male babies. God sent his messenger Moses to demand his people's release. And when the king of Egypt, the Pharaoh, refused, God poured out a series of judgments, plagues, on Egypt designed to crush their gods and to release his people. And this vision of the trumpets incorporates much of the imagery used in the plagues of Egypt. We see judgments of of hail. That was one of the plagues of Egypt. Uh, Water turning to blood, famous one. Uh, Darkness at midday and and, and swarms of, of locusts. All of these allusions to the Exodus story are designed to remind God's people that God has heard their cry and he's answering it by pouring out judgment on their oppressors. That judgment on the enemy comes in response to people's cries. And, and the, the, the Revelation passage actually links it intentionally. I, I put it up on the screen, I think. Um, the Exodus passage refers to God saying to Moses, I have heard my people crying out, and so I've come down to rescue them. And, and then using very similar language in the Revelation, people are crying out uh, to God to hear their cries, to hear, to see what's happening, and to respond. Another thing is these judgments play on Rome's worst fears, particularly the sixth one, with this big army coming up from beyond the Euphrates. That was Rome's constant concern. They feared that somehow beyond their vision, and they had a pretty wide vision of what was going on around them, but somehow that beyond their vision, there was an unseen, unknown enemy that was amassing. And that there would come a day when these hordes of barbarians would stream across and sack Rome, which is exactly what happened in 406. But So it was a worthy fear on their part. But this was a fear that people had. Furthermore, uh, by this time in the 90s, rumors have been circulating that Nero, who had killed himself in the 60s, that, um, that Nero had somehow survived, and he was out there, he was putting together an army that was going to come back and was going to take over Rome and return power to himself. And we'll actually see this crop up uh, later in Revelation, that, that view that Nero was somehow back from the dead, as it were. Uh, so these visions bring together both the judgments on Egypt as well as the terror of Rome to basically say one thing. God will judge wickedness. He will answer evil with judgment. Be warned. Take heed. Evil will not last forever. God will act. The third thing to notice in, in, this, in, in these uh, plagues, these judgments, trumpets, is you need to notice the devil in the details. 
These judgments aren't simply pictured as natural or psychological. These judgments are also pictured as diabolical, that somehow God is allowing demonic forces led by Satan himself to wreak havoc on his own. Deception seems to be a theme through here. Uh, the power of the mouth to destroy people. Something we're going to see again when we encounter the beast and the false prophet in, in later chapters. Something that challenged the church as they tried to hold true to teaching about Jesus as they were challenged not to allow when we went through the letters, the earlier um, memos to, to the church. We saw there was a challenge to the church to be true, to, to deal with false teaching. Deception was a, had the power to destroy and so here we see those who, are, it's pictured though, those who had served the devil are now receiving his ultimate reward, torture, pain, suffering, and loss. The fourth thing to notice, and this is hugely important, this is central to what's going on in these visions, is that the judgments are limited in scope. Now, I know some of you right now are saying, are you joking me? Did you just hear what you just read? I mean, this is like catastrophic. This is awful. Everything is over. And it is bad. But the vision gives us an important detail over and over and over again. It's intended so we notice it. Let me ask you, how much of the earth and the trees were burned up? Yeah. How much of the sea turned to blood? How many living creatures died? Do you see a pattern emerging? One third. You can actually say it this way. Only one third. One third of the ships were destroyed. One third of the rivers. A third of the springs. A third of the sun, moon, day, night. A third. Not total. Not two-thirds, not 90%. And this is very deliberate as this vision is being shared. It's intended to reveal something. Other ways that the judgments are shown to be limited is how these demonic locust scorpion things are told not to harm the grass of the earth, the plants, the trees, but only those who did not have the seal of God on their forehead. And it's alluding back to what we already saw in Revelation 7, where the people of God, the servants of God, who've been given the gift of God's Holy Spirit, have been sealed. Not that bad things aren't going to happen, but that they have been protected from the wrath of God, and that they're protected from any lasting spiritual harm. They've been sealed. They've been protected. And so now, the, the punishment is only on those who did not have the seal. And, but even then, they weren't allowed to kill them. They were only allowed to torture them for five months. Not that I want to sign up for that, five months, but it shows a limit to how much they were allowed to be affected. Now, in the end, people are killed, but again, only one-third. Horrible, yes, but total, no. Now, why do I say this, or why is this pointed out? This is so important. This vision pictures limited judgment because God wants people to turn to him and receive life rather than to die in their sin. That's the heart of God for people. God loves people. God loves wicked people. God loves people who oppress and persecute. That's why he told his people to pray for them. That's why he's told his people to bless them. And so here we see God at his very heart. Yes, judgment comes, but it's limited because he wants people to turn, in the words of James, mercy triumphs over judgment. And this leads us right into the second question. What were these judgments designed to do? Now let's be really clear. God hates evil and he promises to judge it. He does judge it. In fact, this vision we see is visually is really another way of saying the exact same thing we read in Romans 1.18 where it says that the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth 
by their wickedness. This is just a very visual way of saying the same things. These judgments, the judgments that are meted out through history, the experiences people have of things going all wrong because they pursued their own way, they pursued selfishness, they pursued violence, they refused to follow Jesus, they refused the way of peace, all these things, as well as the promise that a future judgment, they show God's holy heart. They show his commitment to goodness. They show that he is opposed to anything and anyone who will choose evil and destruction over righteousness and goodness. He's opposed to that. But, and this must be seen very clearly, judgment is never, ever God's first choice. More than judgment, God wants repentance. God doesn't serve up pain and suffering or or allow it to happen so that people get their due. That's what I would do. That's what some of you would do, I know, right? They deserve it. God doesn't do that. He allows it so that people can see the natural consequences of a life of evil so that they can turn away from wickedness and they can choose his good gift of life that God wants people to come back to him, to come back to life, to be rescued from death and disaster. And that's why in this vision, judgments are pictured as limited. Yes, they're designed to show God's opposition to evil. They're shown, shown to design evil, you know, show evil's end. But more than that, they're designed to give people a chance to turn around, to see evil for what it is, and to see God and His grace. So these judgments are warnings. They're graceful warnings, they're gracious warnings, given so that people can live and not die. And it's shared here in Revelation in all this vivid, horrifying, dystopian, dare I say, apocalyptic imagery to shake people up and get them to see that this life opposing the Lamb, this is where it will take you. Deeper into pain. Further into suffering. Farther into the grip of the devil himself. Deceived with death as your only reward and judgment will come. But here's the question, the third one we need to answer. Did it work? Did these gracious warnings have the effect that God desired? Did people, having received these judgments, having seen the way sin will take them, having seen the destruction that is poured out, did they somehow realize as they saw it, oh my goodness, God is being gracious, I need to turn around and embrace the way of the Lamb. Did it work? No, it did work. If that was the hope, it was a total failure. God was very disappointed. See how the chapter concludes? Look at the last few verses of chapter 9. The rest of mankind, who were not killed by these plagues, still did not repent of the work of their hands. They did not stop worshipping demons and idols of gold, silver, bronze, stone, and wood, idols that cannot see or hear or walk. Nor did they repent of their murders, their magic arts, their sexual immorality, or their thefts. You hear that? Three times, still did not repent, did not stop, nor did they repent. This is actually the point of this first part of the vision, the the, the section that we're looking at today. God judges evil, but God would rather have people turn away from evil and receive life. And these judgments, as right as they are, as much as they come in answer to prayer, they don't actually serve God's ultimate purpose or His highest plan. Not on their own, they don't. God wants people to turn away from evil. That is his first choice. He doesn't want people to die in their sin. That's why he sent his son, Jesus. And these judgments are ineffective. They don't bring about repentance. People don't experience this and then turn around. So if judgment doesn't work, and it doesn't, never has, never will, 
what will work? How will people who are resistant to, to God's gracious warnings, resistant to what God is doing, how will oppressive governments and manipulative men and evil women ever turn away from their sin and repent and come to life in Jesus? How will this ever happen? Are you ready for this? Only through the suffering witness of the church. Witness. Witness is the answer that the next two chapters, Revelation 10 and 11, they round out this whole picture. I let it out today so you know where this is all going. It's only when Christians who've been sealed by the Holy Spirit, following the Lamb, become the witnesses that we're called to be, laying down our lives for anyone we can, anyone who opposes us, serving in the name of Jesus, no matter how it's accepted, inviting people to follow the way of the Lamb. It is only when the church has been so gripped by the love of Jesus for lost people and they're willing to do whatever it takes to point them to Jesus. Only when that happens will rebellious and evil people actually turn from their sin and embrace life. Now, some of you could tell that story. Some of you could talk about your own life and and recognize, you know what? I had trouble upon trouble upon trouble. My life was falling apart. I would choose this, and it would all go bad. This relationship would go bad. This relationship would go bad. And difficulties happened in my life. But I never really knew what was happening. I was disillusioned. I was depressed. I was struggling. But I didn't understand what was going on until someone came along. And they didn't make pronouncements on what was happening in my life. But they said, hey, have you heard about a guy named Jesus? Would you come to church with me? Hey, would you consider coming to this thing called Alpha. It's not until a Christian got alongside someone who was maybe going through difficulty, who was experiencing sometimes maybe God's judgment, but just the sense that your sin is wrecking your life. Somehow they didn't see God's grace in that until someone was able to point it out to them and say, hey, let me tell you about Jesus. Hey, why don't you come over and have coffee? Hey, would you be interested in be part of a Bible study? Would you come sometime to my church? They're not too freaky. It's only when that happens. And that's why we need to see Revelation 8 and 9, the horrible visions of judgment that we see there, in, together with Revelation 10 and 11. We've got to hold those together so we can see that it's part of a larger story of how repentance actually happens. Not through terrifying judgment, but through sacrificial witness. That these judgments, unless they're interpreted, unless the difficulty that's happening in someone's life is interpreted in the light of God's grace revealed to us in Jesus, it actually only serves to harden hearts. Witness, though, the witness of the church, your witness, my witness, being present in people's lives, sharing when appropriate, praying and praying and praying, for the opportunity to talk about what's going on and to, to just invite them to consider Jesus. That witness creates the possibility of repentance, which is God's highest hope, people choosing life in Him. So for today, where does that leave us? Or maybe to return to the question of our whole series, how does this, these, you know, this vision of awful judgments reveal Jesus to us? How is this a truly apocalyptic vision where the curtain is pulled back on something terrible, on on the way people's lives are being destroyed, where the curtain is pulled back to reveal something critical about who Jesus is and what is really real and how we should live? 
Well, first, even though it's a vision of judgment, we need to hear in this vision the passionate love Jesus has for sinners. Now, it's really weird to think of it this way. I know when I was first reading it, you thought, oh my goodness. Some of you, you were starting to get chills already. But this is actually what this says. When you focus in on what this vision is saying, especially if you stick around so the next week I can fill it out, you see the love of God in Christ, that, that God limits His judgment so that His ultimate aim can be realized, that people will have an opportunity to repent. And that opportunity comes as you and I, as the church, often the suffering church, bears witness to Jesus and His love for them. Second, these judgments remind us especially if you have decided already to follow Jesus, they remind us of of just how willing Jesus is and was to take our judgment. The vision shows us in vivid, powerful ways that sin will be judged. It has to be judged. Wickedness will not be overlooked. We don't have a God who just shrugs his shoulder at the awful things that have been done to other people. We don't have a God who just says, oh, well, I guess that's just the way it is. Evil must be answered. God has promised that he will. The question is always this. Will people refuse grace and insist on receiving the judgment themselves? Or will they turn away from their sin and let Jesus bear the judgment for them? That is the choice. Starkly put. Will we let judgment take us down or will we let Jesus take it away? This is actually the basic story of the Bible. This is, this is actually what we're always talking about. It is good news. The gospel means good news. That Jesus loves sinners so much that he was willing to take their place, willing to step into their judgment. That the things that we deserve because of our rebellion, because of the way we hurt others, because of our rejection of God's ways, all the stuff, all the death, the, the destruction that has happened, humanity-wide, that Jesus stepped into that place and he, he did that by becoming one of us by becoming a human being, living a sinless, perfect life, revealing God's heart to people in the way that He healed, the way that He taught, the way that He lived, the way that He included. And then bearing our sin and our suffering and our hurt and our shame, bearing that to the cross, dying in our place so that you and I could walk free, free to live both now and forever. And that's why we call it good news. It's central to the whole story. And that's what we celebrate today In communion. At the table of communion, we celebrate the startling fact that Jesus has stepped into our place. And not only taking a portion of our judgment, not only covering the things that were really bad, not ignoring some things and and treating some others, but he stepped into our place by taking all of it. All of our rebellion. All of our brokenness. The hurt that we've done to others. The hurt we've received. The shame that we've carried. By taking all all of it from us, and absorbing it into his very self, his sinless, perfect self. That's why it's been called in Christian history the wonderful exchange. The wonderful exchange. In Second Corinthians 5 we read, God made him, referring to Jesus, who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of of God. At the table of communion, two elements are present, the, the bread and the juice. 
They represent God's love for us in Jesus, taking our brokenness, exchanging places with us. The bread is the body of Christ, beaten, spit upon, punched, scourged, and hung on the cross, revealing simultaneously to us the horrible reality of sin. Our sin. Your sin. Sin of the whole world. The horrible reality of sin. And the terrific, enduring power of His love. The juice is... We serve juice here. could be wine in traditions that you're from. The juice is the body of Christ, which poured from His broken body, running down His legs, dripping into the dirt, and is a symbol throughout the Revelation of victory. These holy sacraments capture the sacrificial of death of Christ, the passionate love of God, but they declare His victory over evil, His mastery over death, that through His sacrificial death, through the weakness of the slain Lamb, darkness was overcome, evil was destroyed, sin was dealt with, judgment was taken, death was defeated by the death of the Son of God. In communion, we celebrate the victory of Jesus over death. And we declare with the saints, down through the ages, the same uh, praise course that we already saw in Revelation 5. We say, worthy. We come to the table, we say, worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. That's what we say. That's what we sing. That's what we declare. So I want to invite you today to come and celebrate the victory of Jesus. And as you come, thank Jesus. Make this a statement of thanksgiving. You're coming today to say, thank you, Jesus, for taking my judgment. Thank you, Jesus, for loving me, a sinner. Thank you, Jesus, for taking to yourself my muck, my hurt, my shame, my evil, my rebellion, my hard heart my wickedness, for for making me right with you, for for correcting everything that's been wrong, for standing in my place, for making me holy and pure and available and new. That's what we say when we come to communion. And if you can say that today, if you can say, thank you, Jesus, thank you for all you've done, I receive it, then you are so welcome to come. I'm going to pray And then our servers are going to come and I'm going to serve them um, here at the front, all all eight of them, I think. And then we're going to offer communion today at four different stations. Here at the front, there's two. And then there's two at the back. And the gluten-free option is in that back corner? Okay. So at that one, if you have a gluten concern, uh, please go to that station and you'll be able to receive our gluten-free communion bread as well. Thank you, Val. Anyone's invited to come. Come and say thank you to Jesus for what he's done. Come and receive his forgiveness. He is asking us to meet him here at the table. He loves us. He welcomes us. Let me pray. Jesus, we are thankful that you took our judgment. Your heart for us is incredible. That you would look at us. Some of us have run away from you for years. Some of us might still be running And you love us. And you're calling us today to come. I pray that we would come to the table today thankful for your love. Hearing your call to follow you. To be your people. 
to be your witnessing church for the sake of the world. So we come today with grateful hearts to receive from you life, forgiveness, courage, and passion. To receive from you your victory over death and your life everlasting. We pray in your name. Amen.